We're delighted that you're listening to this series on Revelation entitled, The Rest of the Story. To best understand such a complicated book, we encourage you to first listen to the CDs, Keys That Unlock Revelation. This is a three-part series Randy Pope did to preface the study of Revelation so as to give you a better handle on how to understand the book. Also included in the compilation are four Q&A sheets written about numerology, the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium. We also included a full outline of the book of Revelation. Many of the message note outlines were abbreviated and omitted the last verses of chapter 22, which were not part of the series. Though our teaching team wanted to cover every verse of Revelation and to go into much further detail on each of the texts, we thought it best to simplify the study and narrow the series to 23 messages. Hopefully by doing so, you'll get the big picture and not get lost in some of the more complicated and debatable details. Finally, we realize that the approach we take in interpreting Revelation is not in vogue today. But our expectation is that as you listen to these messages, you'll see the beauty and biblical accuracy of this historic approach to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. May God bless you as you listen and study. I began preaching here at Perimeter in 1977, I made the statement on probably several occasions that I would never preach the book of Revelation until the very latter years of my ministry. I hope that that was not prophetic at that time. <laughs> then only a short few years later in 1980, one of the men that so marked my life as a mentor both as a Christian and as a pastor, his name Frank Barker, suggested that I read a book that he had just finished that had touched him in a major way. It was a commentary on the book of Revelation by a man named William Hendrickson. It was entitled More Than Conquerors. And he suggested that I use it in my own personal worship, that I read a little bit as he had done and then use that portion of Scripture that I had read about in the book of Revelation and make that the text for my personal worship. He had shared that it was one of the most meaningful times that he had ever spent in God's Word in worship, and I found my own experience to be the same. In fact, I look back now, and I would say I know of no time in my spiritual pilgrimage where the Word of God ministered to me any more significantly and encouraged me any more than when going through the book of Revelation. And so, in fact, a year after that, in 1981, I taught this book. And I am so thrilled to be coming back to it to teach it again because I think that there is unusual blessing for those who understand and apply the words of the book of Revelation. Every Christian, in fact, should study this book. The Apostle John certainly agreed as he wrote through inspiration in Revelation 1-3. He said, blessed is he 
who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. A very unusual word of promise, of blessing to those who hear, they read, they heed the words of this revelation. Very intriguing. I would imagine that most of us come into this series in one of two categories. One, some of you would say, I have no clue what the book of Revelation is all about. I don't understand it. I don't know anything that's happening in the book of Revelation. I'm very unfamiliar with it. In fact, I stay away from it because it is so difficult to understand. There would be another group of us that fall in a second category, Those of us in the second category would say, you know, I am intrigued with the book of Revelation, and I will say my understanding of it has been greatly influenced by one of several books that I have read, perhaps movies that you have seen, films you have watched. But high on the list of those books that have influenced us is one that came out in the 70s. It is called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. How many of you have heard of that book, Isn't it interesting? Nearly everyone here raises their hand, at least a large number of us do. That's one book. By the way, I recently heard, not documented to be fact, but I heard from what I think would be a reliable source, that it is the second leading selling book in the history of books, only second to the Bible. Isn't that intriguing? Now, more recently, many of us have been influenced by another series of books, by Tim LaHaye, entitled Left Behind. How many of you have, uh, are familiar with the book's Left Behind series? Raise your hand. Quite intriguing. A majority of us, for sure. What you need to be aware is that what I'm teaching through this series is in great contradiction with those books. And I mean great contradiction to these books. It's not that I discredit them as being bad and evil and wicked. But my personal view is it is built on a very, very poor theology. It does a lot for us in some respects to read books like that. The fact that it prepares us to think about end times and so forth. But... You're going to see something much different through this series. What you do need to know is that what you are reading in those books and what you're seeing on films and movies, etc., about the end times from a Christian perspective, virtually all marked by a theology that was never believed by any Christian until the mid-1800s. That is significant. You need to know a bit of the history. A man named John Nelson Darby, who was a lawyer, should cause us a little suspicion already. (laughs) Anybody likes hearing that except the lawyers that are here. But anyway, a, a trained lawyer was reading in the book of Isaiah, and as he was in the book of Isaiah, chapter 32, he came across a statement a state of things in no way established yet. It was his own perspective that God was speaking to him 
to be the recipient of truth that no Christian since the apostles have known. No Christians throughout that history ever understood the word of God about these things until he was given insight. He defined them himself as rediscovered truths. He proposed a list of beliefs and theology, many of which dealt with the last days, put under a broad title of dispensationalism, and all but one of the major beliefs were in absolute and total contradiction to the history of the Christian church, including through the reformers. I mean, across the board, totally threw out and replaced different teachings, much of which, again, deals with the end times. He was himself one who broke away from the church of England and started his own movement, his own religious movement. He was at odds with some of the great Christians of his day, and a few of the beliefs were I to read them, and I have them here, but time doesn't permit. If I were to read some of the beliefs, you would immediately respond and say, it is heretical. Some of the things he taught were just absolutely, if I taught them, I would be taken away from this ministry. Uh, I would be excommunicated from this church for teaching the things that were taught then, at least some of those. Now, on the other hand, I want to say, I believe Darby, a very sincere and godly man who loved the Lord but was in doctrinal error. But you need to know that all that you are learning in these popular works is not the majority report of God's church through its history. And not only is it not the majority report through history, it's not the majority report through the world today. It is a Western perspective. He was from Ireland. It started there. Immediately what happened was he was in close relationship with a man named Schofield. Many of you are familiar with the Schofield Bible. To that date, the American Bible Association did not allow any notes, footnotes, to be put in the Bible. They had a rule that said, nothing but the word in the word. And so they refused to put man's thoughts as footnotes in Bibles. Today, we're very familiar with study Bibles. I have no problem with study Bibles whatsoever. But what happened was, this was the first, and when his notes were put in the Schofield Bible, particularly in the Western world, there was a consumption of Schofield Bible And people were saying, for the first time, I can understand what it's saying. And so people loved it. Then was birthed prophetic conferences, and from the prophetic conferences sweeping over to America, this became the majority report in most of our minds. But you need to know the history of it. Does its history discredit it to say it can't be the Word of God? No. But it certainly raises a huge red flag to say, ah, we ought to be very suspicious but we look in the Word of God to find out, is it accurate or is it not? I'd like to make these disclaimers as we begin. Having said all that I've said, Darby may be right and I may be wrong. Whenever you see godly, evangelical, Bible-believing people teaching things in difference, Every one of those Christians should in humility say, I may be wrong, I have no hold on the corner of the truth, but neither do they. What I find intriguing is you don't hear what I'm teaching very often, at least in this part of the world, but it is the historical viewpoint, and sometimes some challenge say, you shouldn't be teaching against some of 
the teachers, the great people of God in the past, but that's exactly how this began. And so consequently, very appropriate, we discern ourselves in the word, more noble than the Bereans we read in Scripture, who study to find out what does the Bible teach. And I hope this will just simply be another perspective for you to be the judge in the word of God. Another disclaimer, not only I could be wrong, but I will make interpretive mistakes. It cannot be avoided. I don't think any person has ever or will ever be able to go through the whole book of Revelation and not miss anything. There will be misinterpretation here and there. I do believe, though, that you're going to find for the grand, larger scheme, it will be very in line with the Word of God. But again, you have to make that judgment. Now, before I get into the heart of what we have to say here, I'd like to make these requests. First, I would like to ask you each week that you read the text prior to the weekend so that I will tell you week to week, here's what we cover the next week, and that you read that on your own. Read commentaries if you'd like. Do what as little or as much, but have read the text. I think it will help you greatly. And then, lastly, I'd like for you to be aware that this week and next week, we're talking keys to unlock revelation. These are foundational. We will cover eight keys today, two next week, and as I do that, if you're a guest with us and not familiar with the format of my preaching and how we typically go about using the Word of God, these two weeks are different. I'm turning this into more of a classroom than I prefer to do, but I think it's the only way that you can have a foundation to prepare for the book of Revelation. And my prayer and goal is that when this thing is over, when we get through with the series, you people are going to be able to say, how I love the book of Revelation. I even understand it, and I think you will because of these keys that will unlock it for you. Let's begin now looking first at seven keys that are adaptions that I have made from the works of William Hendrickson in More Than Conquerors, very important principles. And by the way, he's one of the great commentators of all times, in my opinion, uh, he is deceased now, but uh, what a tremendous commentator of God's Word. Any book of the Bible that he has written on, you can note that it would be a good work that he has done. The first of ten. The book of Revelation consists of seven parallel sections which span the time from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. Uh, if you do not know this key, you will lose out on Revelation. You will never understand it from my perspective. You've got to know that it is telling a story seven times. The story begins at the first coming of Christ. It ends at the second coming of Christ. It's told seven different times. Now, so that you can know the breakdowns, let me give them to you. They are as follows. Chapters 1 through 3, the first segment. Then number 4 through 7, chapters 4 through 7. Then chapters 8 through 11. Then 12 through 14, then 15 through 16. The sixth story is chapters 17 through 19, and the last is chapters 20 through 22. Key number two, the first three sections, and that's chapters 1 through 11, reveal the conflict between the church and the world 
with the persecuted church being avenged, protected, and victorious. The last four sections, chapters 12 through 22, reveal the same events, but viewed from, in my own words, a backstage perspective. With the dragon warring against Christ and his church, who remained victorious. And many of you would be aware the dragon, kids, when you see the dragon in the book of Revelation, it's referring to Satan, the devil. So what we're saying here is that the first segment is shown from a front stage perspective, that which we will greatly understand because it's the conflict that we see in the world in which we live. But the last four sections go backstage and see the drama as it takes place in the heavenlies. There is a war going on between the dragon and Christ with his church. And so we have to see it from both perspectives to truly understand it. Number three key. The seven sections are arranged with each section emphasizing a different reality and done so in a progressive climactic order, i.e., the new heaven and earth are more fully described in the final section than in the six previous ones. Let me explain it this way. It would be like me telling you a story that has seven parts and telling the story seven times. And I use this only as an illustration. For instance, let's say that the story has these seven components. First, a little boy. Secondly, who goes to a store. Thirdly, to buy some bread for his mother. Fourthly, who stops by a candy store on the way. Kids, see if you could relate. Fifthly, spent his money on candy at the candy store. And then, sixthly, he comes home and tells his mother that his money was stolen. And then lastly, he later confesses out of guilt and gets punished. Now, let me suggest that I tell the story to you seven times. And let's say it goes like this. Let me tell you the story. It's of a little boy. And oh, by the way, before I go on the story, let me tell you a little bit about the little boy. His name is David. Red head, freckle face, and I go on and tell you a lot of things about David. And then I say, and he went to the store to buy some bread for his mother, so forth and so on. Then I say, let me tell you the story a second time. There's a little boy, and I've already told you about the little boy. But let me tell you, he went to the store. And let me tell you about the store. The store was at such and such a location. It was a Kroger. It was such and such. It was this, it was that. I tell you all about the store, and then I go on and say to buy some bread for his mother, blah, blah, blah. Tell you the rest of the story. And I do that all the way through seven times, emphasizing a different piece of the story each time. It would look something like this as I put this on the board. It would be as if I tell the story. The storyline has seven components. And then I tell it again, and it has seven components again. And I tell it again, and I do this seven times like this. And the first time, I emphasize this one, the second, and the third, all the way down the line. Now, the way that you would best be able to understand it is to take where it is emphasized and then the other six times it is touched on, 
put it all together using cross-reference, and you would then get a great perspective on this piece of the story. Now, trust me, it's not this clean in that they're not always each piece being discussed. Maybe this one's left out or this one or only this one's just barely touched on, and it's not an exact order, but you see it being retold time and time again in an ascending climactic order. Can you imagine if you took the book of Revelation and you ended here and then you went again, you went out this way seven times and then tried to make this into one story? You can see how different the end of the story would be. You would have him going to seven different stores and so forth and so on. So again, it's not quite that clean, but it gives you the perspective of how this is written. Number four key, symbolic pictures are used throughout the book to convey deeper realities than mere words can describe. Details that pertain to these pictures should always be interpreted in harmony with the central thought. Focusing on the prominent idea, never on the details themselves. Great interpretive error takes place When these pictures or symbols are taken to be literal, the question that I'm always asked when teaching this, you mean you're not a Bible literalist? You don't take the Bible literally? And I say I take some literally, and I take other parts not to be literal. And immediately the response of many in the Christian community is, oh, that's terrible. You should take all of the Bible literally. And I say, you don't. You don't believe that God owns only the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't take that literally. But you don't expect that that was given to be taken literally. Now, kids, let me ask you. If I read in the Old Testament that Jonah was in the belly of a fish, do you think I take that literally? Absolutely. You know why? Because it was written in a historical work. It is obvious that the author intended it to be taken literally. And Jesus, in fact, refers to it as a literal historical event. Sure, I take that literally. But when I come to parables and I come to stories that are told or or various uh, expressions that are used, God, for instance, has nostrils, and his nostrils widen in his anger. Do I believe that he literally has nostrils? No, he's a spirit. He has not a body like you and me. So, no, I'm not a literalist throughout, only where it's intended to be taken literally. And great damage is done to this book by pressing literal interpretation into symbols, pictures. Why pictures? Because pictures have an unending ability to teach. People can look at a picture and say, yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, it's a cloud in the sky. Somebody else reads into it and says, oh, but look, look at the detail of the cloud. Look at this, look at that. And all of a sudden, somebody else is seeing much more because it's an unending way of expressing much truth. And so these pictures and symbols are very, very important. But We should always see them in light of the central truth. Number five key, the various symbols that are used Seals, trumpets, bowls of wrath, etc., do not refer to specific singular events in history, but rather to human conduct and divine dealings operating throughout the history of the church. Again, great mistake is made when 
a figure in history becomes, for instance, the Antichrist. Very common to do that. We describe he's going to be this and he's going to be that, and we begin to identify him as a particular person. It's interesting how many different generations have identified the Antichrist during their day and their time. Always looking through their own cultural, personal perspective, never really seeing it from the global understanding of what the Bible is teaching. Or taking, for instance, the nation of Russia, uh, when they were the powerhouse uh, before uh, the, uh, during the days of the Cold War, amazing, the various identifications. Oh, this is Russia in the book of Revelation, and this is China in the book of Revelation. You begin to see that all over, and they oh, no, 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 please don't do that. This book was written every bit as much for the people in the apostolic days as John writes for their comfort as it is for ours, not just for people who lived 10 years prior to the coming of Christ. Number six, the revelation is rooted in contemporaneous events and circumstances and therefore, as all books of the Bible, must be interpreted in light of the conditions prevailing when the book was written. Again, we make grave mistakes. We begin to base our interpretation on the events and the circumstances of our modern Western world. Number seven key, the revelation is rooted in the scriptures and must be interpreted in light of the entire book that is Old Testament and New Testament. We should never see revelation in contradiction with any part of scriptures. In fact, we cannot accurately interpret the book of Revelation without using the understanding of the rest of the scriptures. Very important to know that. We must beware of what's called eisegesis. It's a term I introduced to most of you, uh, unaware of its meaning. Uh, in the Greek, the word ace or ice is, is to, uh, it means into. It is taking a particular truth that we hold to be accurate and then pressing it into Scripture so that we've got scriptural verification for it. Now, what we believe in is exegesis, exodus, bringing out of. That is, we go to the text and we bring out what it teaches, and that's what we hold, never eisegesis. And that is a grave danger. In fact, I would suggest when you hear a man say, I, after 1,800 years, and the recipient of truth, and now I'll show you where it's in the Scripture, boy, now you're on very thin ice of eisegesis at that point. Very, very thin ice. Leads us to the eighth and the final that we look at today of the 10. And here's where we get into some fun. The last days are to be viewed as beginning at the resurrection and ascension of Christ with only one future coming of Christ and that taking place at the same time as the rapture and final judgment. Let me explain what I'm talking about. If we go to the board, this is the typical progression of the modern view that is held today by so many. We began with the church age, and the church age refers to the time when, when uh, we're living as God's people now, follows the, the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It is followed by what's called a rapture. The rapture refers to a very secret moment no one would know when 
that Christians are going to be taken up to be with the Lord. We're going to meet the Lord in the air and Christians leave and the non-believers are left on this earth to go through a seven-year tribulation. Now, let me say that this same view is held with some variations. Uh, this is the one Darby came out with that's become probably most, uh, certainly most popular. But beginning with a, ra- a rapture, followed by a seven-year period of tribulation where there is great uh, difficulty and so forth. It is this time that, the, uh, that you see the emergence of the uh, Antichrist and all that goes on there. Then, at the end of that seven years, there's a very special event called the second coming of Christ. He is going to now come to this earth, and he is going to reign on this earth for 1,000 years, millennium, meaning 1,000. He is going to reign on this earth, uh, most would agree, from Jerusalem, and will reign over the world, will bring the Christians back here to be able to reign on earth with him for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, there is a third very important event, the judgment day, that brings judgment on the people who reject the Lord Jesus and will give rewards to those to whom reward is due And that is then to be followed by the new heavens and the new earth. That is the typical scenario that is followed by this more modern perspective. What I'd like for you to do now is look up a few texts of Scripture, and I'm going to even start reading for time's sake before you find it. First, we look up Revelation chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 15, go through 18. And I would like for you, in each of these texts, we'll look at at, uh, several texts here, you determine as you are reading which of these events, the rapture, the second coming, or the judgment day is being described in the text that I use. Begins this way, Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art, who wants, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, having just read it very quickly, how many would say this is referring to the rapture? All right, how many would say second coming? Okay, a few hands there. How many would say the judgment day? Most everybody. I would agree that's the judgment day. And virtually everyone, I don't care which group you're, you're involved in this perspective, modern perspective, or the more historic one, most would all agree that that's right. This is the story of the judgment day. I'd like for you to note that verse 15 begins, and the seventh angel sounded. Now, you'd have to have read the chapters preceding. Uh, this is the seventh trumpet that's being sounded. Uh, For instance, in chapter 8, verse 2, it says the trumpet in that particular one. But it's obvious here it is the seventh trumpet. And so first, we have here a trumpet that sounds. And this is 
significant. And then if you look at verse 15, you notice that there is a gathering of the saints who fear the name and then of those who are going to be destroyed. And so you have also a gathering. Very significant, a trumpet and a gathering. Now let's look at a second text, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29 through 31. Matthew 24. And again, you tell me what event is this referring to? But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the nation of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, how many would say this is the rapture? No one says that. How many would say this is the second coming of Christ? Okay, virtually everybody would raise their hands. And I agree, it is of the second coming of Christ. Now, note though in the text, verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great what? There it is, it's a trumpet again. And then in the same verse, gathering. There is a gathering. Let's look at a third text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15 through 17. It reads, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. How many believe that this is the rapture? Obviously, we raise our hands and say, yep, that's the rapture. If you will note, just as in the other two occasions, there is a trumpet and there is a gathering. Now, most would look at this and say, wait just a minute, there's, there's three different trumpets and three different gatherings. Now, the question is, is this the same trumpet and gathering? Or are there three different trumpets and gatherings? First, appropriately, you would almost always come to the conclusion in this kind of interpretive reasoning that it's the same one being referred to. But let's assume that it's not. Let's assume that there are three different trumpets and three different gatherings. One last scripture to look at regarding this issue, and that is the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you're looking that text up, we should also note that in both the Matthew passage 24 and the First Thessalonians passage, the word, the same Greek word for coming, the coming of the Lord is used, which raises the understanding that it is talking about the same event by the fact that the same word is used to talk about the coming of the Lord. But let's assume we say, well, ah, that's shaky. I don't actually, that doesn't convince me. Let's go further. If you will, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It reads, verse 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Again, if I ask you who believes this is the rapture, we all raise our hands. This is obviously talking about the rapture. Notice that there is a trumpet, and there is a gathering. We would expect that. There was here, there is there. Now here's the question. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. If you were to look at this and say there are three trumpets, which would you say is the last trumpet? Oh, you'd say it's this one's the last trumpet. But Paul says, no, this is the last trumpet. Which leads me to the conclusion, this is referring to the exact same event. The difference is only this. And that is your perspective on the trumpet. Let me give you a different scenario, one that I think best explains this whole situation. I would suggest the chart looks like this. Here we have Christ in his crucifixion, resurrection, so forth. And then you have here three events. The rapture, the second coming, and the judgment. And all four scriptures relate to the same moment. The difference is how you perceive that trumpet. It's like a basketball game. At the end of the game, the horn sounds. What does that mean? To those who are believers, in this analogy, those that win, they say, yes. It is our victory we have won. For those who are non-believers are in this analogy on the losing team, the same horn represents judgment day for them. It is an issue of perspective. As we think of the approach that I'm going to be showing that there's a cross And this is the period of time here that exists that we are in, in this particular moment, not knowing when he comes back. There would still be a few other scriptures, I think, that will be insightful. I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 6, very briefly. John chapter 6, Jesus is addressing a mixed audience of believers and non-believers. He speaks four different times as to what will happen on the last day, singular day. In chapter 6, verse 39, it says, in the middle of the text, all that has been given to me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will be raised up on the last day. Verse 44, and I will raise him up on the last day, referring to his people. Verse 54 of chapter 6, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, referring to believers, will be raised up on the last day. So let's assume that John, who has heard this, he says, okay, I am going to be raised up on the last day. That's encouraging. Then he dies. Now tell me, when on this chart would he be raised? He'd be raised right here, wouldn't he, in the rapture. Is this the last day? Well, some would say, well, it's the last day before the tribulation. Let's give them that credit. It's referring to the last day before the tribulation. But if you move to John chapter 12, you will find it intriguing 
that it is the same author, it is the same book, and therefore must be interpreted using words the same. In verse 48 of chapter 12, it says, He who rejects me, now he's talking of non-believers, and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So non-believers are going to be judged at the last day. For them, we would say this is here. Is this the last day and this the last day? See, John would have 1,007 years before this last day. It doesn't make sense at all. It just doesn't work together. I'd like for you to turn to another text that is an outstanding text that we have used so much to build the movies and the text line of the books that we read, Matthew 24. And we would ask, what about the passage in Matthew 24 where it says, hey, two men are out in the field and one's taken, the other left. What about the story about the two women at the mill? One taken, the other left. Assuming that the Christian is taken in the rapture here, this is viewed as a rapture passage, and then those that are left are here to experience the tribulation being the non-believer. Well, when we turn to chapter 24, beginning in 37, it's using a, a contrast here showing what it's going to be like for the Lord to come in his second coming and using the days of Noah to illustrate it. So it says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they, important word, and ask yourself, who does they refer to? They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So who was taken away in Noah's day? The believers, Noah and his family, or the unbelievers? We would all agree. Well, it was the unbelievers that were taken away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now let's hear about the coming of the Son of Man. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Let me suggest, if you're going to use appropriate interpretation they, referring to the non-believers in the first part of the illustration, in the co contrast, would have to also refer to the unbeliever in the second. So what happened in Noah's day? They were taken away to judgment, and Noah and his family, those who believed in Jehovah, they were to stay and inherit the earth. Let me suggest that the text here is not talking about when Christians are taken away, but non-Christians to judgment, leaving Christians where? Here to inherit the new heaven and the new earth, which is very consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Now, we need to bring this to a, uh, a conclusion. Let me suggest John 6 and John 12 tell us that the rapture and the judgment take place on the same day. Matthew 24 says the second coming and the judgment would be the same day. And therefore, I think it most appropriate to conclude all three would take place on the same day. I was a math major in math. If A equals B and B equals C, then you can say A equals C as well. We're referring to the same event, I would suggest. But I may be wrong. John Darby may be right. 